Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are doing Moses chapter 7 this time. Now, it's possible this podcast has come out a bit late. Uh, The reason for that is both Christopher and I got covid last week. And so we were not able to record. Now, originally I had planned to just go grab my brother-in-law, Dan Meehan, and have him record with me. And that was the day before I got COVID. So just the whole thing got nixed, uh, pushed a week late. Christopher is still not feeling well enough to record, but I did get my brother-in-law, Dan Meehan, to join me. So Dan is here uh, joining me to record this episode um, of the podcast. So welcome, Dan. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Ben. Yeah, I'm Dan Meehan. I was lucky enough to marry Ben's sister, Marianne. And, you know, I, I got my undergrad at BYU uh, in geology. And I have been lucky enough to be on the sister podcast, uh, the Latter-day Contemplation podcast. And I'm really excited to, to talk with you. Yeah, Dan did an episode over there. I don't know what number it was, but it was on symbolism. It wasn't too long ago. And a really excellent episode. Very, very thought-provoking. So if you guys haven't had a chance, go listen to that episode on on symbolism that Dan does with Christopher and Riley. So uh, really good stuff. So here with Moses chapter 7. So this is, this is kind of the meat of what we would call the Book of Enoch. Uh, Christopher and I discussed this a little bit last time, the concept of the Book of Enoch and, and uh, how it plays out in Latter-day Saint theology or Latter-day Saint canon, but then how it kind of fits in in a broader apocryphal context in the scripture. And um, so we, we've got a lot of things here in chapter seven that are, are pretty unique coming through Joseph Smith. This vision of Enoch is something very particular and probably special, I would say, to the Latter-day Saint tradition. A lot of great stuff in here. There's also some some difficult things to wrestle with in this chapter. So we'll we'll try to confront those a bit, um, not try to gloss over things that are difficult too much in this. Uh, we don't necessarily have the best answers for things, <laughs> but uh, but we we'd like to discuss them nonetheless. Here in chapter seven of Moses, we get the continuation of the story of Enoch, the the building of Zion, and then Enoch's vision uh, where he he sees sort of the history of the world and and comes to know God and and the character of God um, and understand more of of the greater plan. So basically, Enoch is telling his story now in chapter seven to the people that he is preaching to. Back in chapter six, we had this verse that basically says, Enoch saw all the souls and God showed him everything. And then it goes on. And basically what we get in chapter seven is an expansion of that verse. Enoch goes and he tells people, this is the vision that I had. And he says this in verse one, he says, many have believed not and have perished in their sins and are looking forth with fear 
in torment for the fiery indignation of the wrath of God to be poured out upon them. Now, we've talked about this before conceptually as a an epistemological experience. So this is the perception of those who are quote-unquote living in sin, right? This is their perception of the judgment of God that is coming. This isn't uh, descriptive of a, a metaphysical condition that they're going to experience, but rather a description of their epistemological experience or condition that they're experiencing now in anticipation of what they think is going to be happening to them. And what Enoch goes on to explain to them, you know, as part of the repentance process is that it's it's not necessary that they they live that way. So he he begins by by talking about his journey. So verse 2. And from that time forth Enoch began to prophesy saying unto the people that as I was journeying and stood upon the place Mahuja and cried unto the Lord there came a voice out of heaven saying turn ye and get ye upon the mount Simeon. So a couple things in this verse that I really really like is first this phrase as I was journeying Last time we talked in the podcast about how one of the things Enoch did early on in his life was go out and travel among all the different peoples of the world. And what it made me realize is that that Enoch was was going and having an experience and coming to understand the people and the cultures and and love them. And what that did was gave him the capacity and the ability to then fulfill his calling as a prophet as he was able to relate to, maybe even speak the language of, and and love these people that he was actually preaching to. So I, I really like this concept, as I was journeying, right? Enoch has has gone out, he's he's left the the order, right, of the of his home that's in the the high places where the righteous dwell, right? And he's gone out into the world to journey to fulfill this calling that he fills. But then the, the voice comes to him and says, turn ye and get ye upon the mount. Okay, so this is a, a return back to the mountain, to Eden, right? And then turn ye, I, just, I like that phrase there because that is, for me evokes repentance. You know, he's turning around to look at God and then get up on the mount. So this is basically what we're stepping into is something akin to an endowment experience for, for Enoch here, right? He's... He's turned to the Lord, and now he's going to the mount, and he's, you know, verse 3, it says, I turned and went up on the mount, and as I stood upon the mount, I beheld the heavens open, right, doors open, and I was clothed upon with glory. Okay, so invoking some some very, you know, familiar to Latter-day Saints, some very endowment-type concepts here and language. Yeah, that actually even continues in... Uh, verse four, you know, when he says, I, I saw the Lord, and he stood before my face and talked with me, even as a man talked with one another face to face. That is, I think, a, a bit significant. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking of is back in chapter six, Enoch is preaching and he still, it, it talks about him preaching from the mountains and high places. So he goes to pray on one of these mountains and God says, no, no, I'm going to need you to go a little bit higher. There's a little bit more that you need to go up. You got to go to the right mountain. And, you know, <laughs> mountains have been good, but you, you got to come up just a little bit more. Because, yeah, again, you're already on a mountain, but uh, you, you got to go to another mountain. That strikes me as interesting that the Lord has very specific mountain for him to go to. 
Huh, yeah, that is interesting. I don't know that I I caught that, but you know, it does evoke like the the concept of an ascension, right? So you right. know, uh, proceeding from from one um, glory to the next, so to speak, right? Right. There's always another mountain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we get this this type of an endowment experience here. the The Lord then gives him a vision, and he prophesies about what's going to happen among the people. In my mind, this is sort of a, a a prelude to tell him, "Hey, these people are violent. When you go among them to to preach, you know, there's there's going to be violence. You're going to be in danger, right? This is this is what you're signing up for." Yeah, and and then we get we we come to this verse eight, which is uh, one of the things that we we say is a difficult or maybe uncomfortable concept here, and and we're going to talk about it in a few ways and and see what. What ideas this evokes for for you guys, and if any of this works for you, or if none of it works for you, I don't know. So here, verse eight, we we get this. We say, "For behold, the Lord shall curse the land with much heat, and the barrenness thereof shall go forth forever." And there was a blackness came upon all the children of Canaan that they were despised among all people. Okay, so one of the things that we deal with a lot of the times. So we get this in the prologate price, and then we get some hints of this in the Book of Mormon, is one of these difficult concepts of of race or skin color that is used as a theme in the scriptures to talk about certain concepts. And there's multiple ways to approach this. We can, we can look at this with an ancient mindset. Um, we can look at it with a modern mindset, or we can look at it with a Joseph Smith mindset or what we we think might be a Joseph Smith mindset. There's probably more ways to look at it, but those are probably the three that that I was thinking about. The first I'm going to bring up is is the Joseph Smith mindset. And uh, I bring that up because in Joseph Smith's time, at this time, the concept of the descendants of Cain or the the Canaanites here uh, um and it's not it's not obvious to me. I'd have to go back and look whether these Canaanites are explicitly talked about as the descendants of Cain or not, but I, I think that's what this is this is getting at, is the idea that the descendants of, of Cain, like Cain and Abel Cain, would have darker skin and that that marked them as the descendants of Cain. Now, this is an idea that, that actually did persist popular within Latter-day Saint, sometimes explicit doctrine um, spoken by people. But certainly within a conceptualization uh, of the doctrine within the culture for quite a long time, it was part of the the, the priesthood ban narrative a little bit and, and so forth. So if we go back, though, to the Joseph Smith conceptualization of this, it was actually a very popular idea and concept in the time that they viewed people of African descent as descendants of Cain. This was a common viewpoint among Christians or, or those that, that interpreted the Bible with, with that type of um, hermeneutic, right? Right. So it's not really far-fetched to think that the, that idea, that concept, if, it was, if that was in President Joseph Smith's mind at the time, and it's not 100% obvious that it was, but it certainly would fit within the, the time and context – that it's not it's not too far fetched to think that that idea would make it its way into this text here, being that Joseph Smith is is translating this and 
putting this out here. It might be uncomfortable yeah. for us with our our mindset to to think of this as, you know, Joseph Smith, prophet of the restoration, having this idea and and it getting into a canonized text. But how we individually want to wrestle with that or not, it might actually be, you know, true the case that there is something in here that still reeks of racism, right? So right. I'm going to move beyond that a little bit because Dan, you you brought up one of the things that is really common, especially in Bible, but ancient texts, this concept of, of skin tone that doesn't necessarily map to a modern, postmodern, you know, past several hundred years concept of, of racism in, in the way that we would conceptualize of it. Right. You want to talk about that a little bit, Dan? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I would recommend that people uh, go find Dan McClellan. I should have looked up which video this was, but he does talk about blackness in, in the Bible and when they use the words blackness. I mean, there's only a handful of references. I think he said one or two uh, where it's actually referring to people whose skin are dark because of their ethnicity and their race. It's in, you know, there's uh, some verses about the Ethiopians having black skin. But other times, you know, I think it's in Job when Job describes his skin as blackness. Um, he's referencing like his skin burning. And it's this metaphorical image that, you know, his sins and his pains are such that it's like a fire burning in him that's causing his skin to burn. There's also, you know, people's countenance being black because they are crestfallen. They are disappointed that something has happened to literally darken their countenance. And then there's, you know, also like uh, I think it's in songs of solomon where it's like i have white skin you have dark skin and it's not saying that this person is african or you know has a high concentration of melanin it's oh you work outside in the sun so you get more tan i work inside because i have a cushy job and i'm you know very very well taken care of so i have lighter skin that's not a race or ethnicity thing it's more of a position of power because you're out in the field you know in the sun obviously you have darker skin that one kind of sticks out to me because again, verse eight, you gotta, you, if you read it, the Lord shall curse the land with much heat and the barrenness of therefore thereof shall go forth forever. Those two things are the given as sort of the curse. And then it says, and there was a blackness came upon the children of Canaan. So it's almost like a little bit of cause and effect. You know, if this area, this, this land has is hot and dry and doesn't grow anything, well, then you have nowhere to shelter. You have nowhere to get shade. So you're working outside and you are going to become more dark than, you know, your neighbor next door who's living in a city and has cover and has trees that they can be under. So this is this is just a description or possibly we, we could say, right, this is possibly just a description of a, of a reality or of a cause and effect here. The the curse was on the land, but. The effect of, of the blackness of the skin, that's not the curse. Right. But what ends up happening is that the people among uh, – the people around despise them, right, because of that, which isn't, isn't uh, overtly racist by our modern concept but is a type of bigotry or prejudice because of a social status. Exactly. And I don't want to discount the idea that Joseph Smith is, is borrowing these – racist ideas right. from his culture. I think we we don't see that this is a, a parallel that we see in the Book of Mormon where it's like Joseph Smith, rather than, you know, 
translating something. He basically is like, and then Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to go grab the Sermon on the Mount that I know and stick it in there. Um, I, I don't want to say it's like lazy translating, but it, it's something that's so ingrained in him that it is, why would I bother, you know, recreating this mm. uh, at this point? They're, they're, I have this, right? I, I Again, this is when we talk about Joseph Smith as the lens through which all these things are translated and received. There has to be some amount to which he accepts what is there and is only looking for, you know, what's new and what, what new light. So he's like, well, we already got this. Sure. What else? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think that, that, that bears mentioning again, you know, that we're not trying to discount and say that that's, that's not the correct way to do it. We're not positing a correct way to do it. We're positing possible ways to conceptualize of it because as you do more, you can you can learn more, right? Right. And it would be really hard to discount. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the racist narratives that have come from this. Right. Uh, another way to to look at this is in the, the metaphorical way like like you talked about that, you know, from like a modern standpoint – you know, we can read this and say, oh, this isn't a curse. This is just describing the condition, just like you, you talked about, because that's sort of a sort of a modern analysis of, a, of an ancient mindset, right? Right. So there, there's one more verse in here in this chapter that, that deals with this concept that goes over in verse 22. I don't know that we'll need to mention it separately, but it kind of deals with the same concept here. It says... They were mixture of all the seed of Adam, save it was the seed of Cain, for the seed of Cain were black and had not place among them. So here it's not, again, it's not 100% clear that we're talking about a, a race or a skin color per se. Probably that's what, you know, Joseph Smith conceptualized this as, but in an ancient context, this meaning wouldn't necessarily be the case you know or like our our modern racist lens so to speak right and you know the the book of remembrance that's kept is is of adam and cain makes a very you know specific point to get away from adam and, and his family so that's again one of the things that i kind of wonder is well how do they know that mm. it was all the seed of cain you know were they keeping genealogies of other people and saying well you're the seed of cain sure i think i think that may be evidence that, hey, this is an ex post facto explanation, you know, where, where scriptures are descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's like, well, these people are the seed of Cain because, you know, we don't like them. Well, okay, maybe you didn't like them first, and then you called them the seed of Cain. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not, not necessarily the other way around. Um, this is a, what we might call an etiological explanation. So right. you, you see something the way it is now, and then you try to, you, you come up with a reason why it's that way. And so this is theorized to have happened with the Israelites on many of the peoples that they encountered as they came into Palestine, they would come up with etiological myths about how these people came to be so that they could distinguish themselves within their own cultural and ethnic context all the way back to Adam, right? Right. That was kind of the idea of Genesis, the book of Genesis, so to speak. And so, you know, a lot of these etiological descriptions come into play as you say, oh, well, 
this people, they were descended from that and they were descended from that. And, and, and that's kind of how that all plays out. So that, that definitely could be part of, of what's going on here with, with these verses. So I want to go over to the next thing that, that kind of stood out to me here in this narrative, you know, Enoch goes and he preaches and teaches the people to repent and it's happening. They're repenting. And verse 16, and from that time forth, there were wars and bloodshed among them. So it's talking about the, all the other people, but the Lord came and dwelt with his people and they dwelt in righteousness The fear of the Lord was upon all nations, so great was the glory of the Lord, which was upon his people. And the Lord blessed the land, and they were blessed upon the mountains and upon the high places, and did flourish. And the Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. Okay, so to unpack this a little bit here. You know, beforehand, Dan, we were talking about how Zion here is on the mountains and upon the high places. And so this is actually a a geographic, if not just conceptual, return to Eden, mm-hmm. right? Right. So they're they're going back up on the mountain and and rebuilding Eden. And it even, you know, the interesting the end of verse 17 even uses the word flourish, which comes from flower right right (laughs) you know something to bloom and flower like in a garden right so we definitely have that idea here that that zion is a return to eden it's the conjunction of of heaven and earth god comes to dwell with his people and then at the same time the people are going to dwell with god but zion is where those meet and so you know it's it's heaven and it's heaven on earth or earth in heaven and kind of comes to be the same concept. Yeah, it's the the axis mundi, you know, that yeah. meeting of heaven and earth. Right, right. Uh, it strikes me that, you know, the people are, you know, the ones who, they're, they're together. Enoch does this great job of getting everyone to basically keep repenting and to be at a point where the Lord comes and dwells with them. And it strikes me that the people are so prepared that then the Lord is like, you are Zion. And it's like, yeah, they're, they're Zion, but they're Zion even before he calls them. You know, he calls them Zion because of what he sees in them. You know, it's not until after he calls them Zion that then Enoch's like, okay, I'm going to keep teaching people. And then, oh, yeah, we should build a city. Uh, and we're going to call the city Zion, obviously. That structure and that sequence of events is, I think, indicative to us. You know, when we talk about building Zion, it's like, well... Are we, we're not building a city somewhere in the future. Like we're building Zion in our hearts and in our communities now. Yeah. Yeah. So it, they were Zion when they were of one heart and one mind first. Right. And then, you know, just as sort of a natural consequence of that, so to speak, you have a city that's being built because there's people gathered together. But the city itself takes its name after the people, not the other way around. Right. 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 Uh, the the people are the spirit or the heart of that of that city. So basically, what's happening here is all of this seems to me, you know, it's a it's a recounting of history. It seems, but this is actually a vision that Enoch is having of the future of Zion. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like 
we're seeing all of this happen as if it's actually happening, but this is to Enoch, all of this hasn't actually happened yet. Right. He's just seeing a vision of what's going to happen, which is really, really interesting here. But here we come to a part in this vision that was really, really interesting and fascinating to me when Shaul and I talked about Third Nephi chapters 8, 9, and 10, and 11 mm-hmm. as well. And that's because what happens here. Um, actually maps really well with with many other visions that we have of prophets in the scriptures. What first mm-hmm. is they first have the theophany, right? They first see God and they're with God, and then they have an experience with Satan, mm-hmm. and then they and then they ascend back up to God. And this maps DNC seventy six. This maps Moses chapter one with Moses's vision, right? Mm-hmm. And it actually maps in many ways with Third Nephi's chapter eight, nine, and ten and eleven with the coming of Christ. Yes. Yeah. And so we talked about this when we did the the Book of Mormon podcast on those chapters. And I kind of want to just review that a little bit because there's some some very interesting things to pull out when we map that here. All right. So I'm going to start in verse twenty four. No, I'm going to start in verse 23. And after that e- that Zion was taken up into heaven, Enoch beheld, and lo, all the nations of the earth were before him. And there came generation upon generation. And Enoch was high and lifted up, even in the bosom of the Father and of the Son of Man. And behold, the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth. And he saw angels descending out of heaven, And he heard a loud voice saying, Woe, woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth. And he beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. Okay, so when we go back and we look at 3 Nephi chapter 9, verse 2, we get some, some similar description and language here. And it came to pass that there was a voice heard among all the inhabitants of the earth upon all the face of this land, crying, Woe, woe, woe unto this people. Woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice, because of the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people, and is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. Now, these verses here seem to be in the voice, and even the chapter headings says this, which Christopher and I are all the time ragging on chapter headings. Don't read chapter headings. They're they're wrong <laughs> so many times. And they just they interpret the scripture in a way that's unfair. <laughs> you know? Yes. So we have this voice here at the beginning of chapter nine that is announcing itself as if it is Christ. Right? Mm-hmm. But the things it says and the way it's it says them really are much more akin to accounts that we have of Satan speaking, both in Moses chapter 1 and then here in Moses chapter 7. Again, we have angels descending out of heaven, and he heard a loud voice saying, Woe, woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth, right? Same thing. Yeah. Same voice. Woe unto this people and inhabitants of the whole earth. Behold, Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth in darkness. What happens here in chapter 9? We have... The whole land is covered in darkness, right? 
Mm-hmm. He looked up and laughed. His angels rejoiced. That's what verse two says, right? Yeah. So one of the other things I noticed here was about verse 25. It says, he saw angels descending out of heaven. So when I first read through this, I thought, well, that's kind of weird. He's talking about Satan. Then he talks about angels. Then he talks about Satan. And I realized the angels that he sees in verse 25, they seem to me, these are probably Satan's angels. Right. That are descending out of heaven. And he heard the loud voice saying, woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth. This is Satan speaking, accusing the earth, right? We, we talk multiple times about Satan being the accuser. And that's what Satan is doing here. He's accusing all the inhabitants of the earth. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. That's really interesting. I have, I have a little more thought on that, but finish up your, your thought and I have something that I want to circle. Well, I, I am very interested to hear what, what you have to say about this. So, I mean, that's basically what happens in chapter nine. We just get an expanded version of this because then this voice that's speaking goes in to talk about, oh, look at this city. It was destroyed because of its iniquities, you know, and look yeah. at this city it's destroyed because of its iniquities. So he goes through and he talks about all of this destruction that happens and he accuses and lays it at the feet of the people. All of this destruction and mass murder of these people is your fault, right? Yeah. And it's a it's a very accusatory way and condemnatory way of, of approaching all of this that just happened. The people have been weeping and wailing and mourning this whole time. And here comes this voice accusing and then darkness, right? Yeah. And this this maps exactly to the way that Satan is portrayed here in the vision of Enoch. But then we get verse 27. And Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the Father and Son, and the Holy Ghost fell on many, and they were caught up by the powers of heaven into Zion. And it came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue of the people, and he wept. Okay? The God that's looking down upon the people and weeping because of his love for them is not the same God that says, yeah, I destroyed all these cities with fire because you were wicked, right? Yeah. This is There's something different going on here. And that's why this account is so fascinating to me because of how it maps. And again, if we went to Moses chapter one, we would see this same pattern Yeah, with, with how Satan comes in and accuses and, and pa- tries to pass himself off as Christ even. Yeah. Right? Says, I'm the only begotten. Worship me. And, you know, how many times does that happen in the scriptures as well? So. Yeah. So. You know, what What came to me as you were talking is 3rd Nephi takes place a long time after this this account, you know, hmm. historically. No matter when you want to put Enoch, right, or even, you know, Moses, 3rd sure. Nephi is, is way later. And Satan, as accuser, has he gotten better at his job? Has he gotten to the point where he can get us to be the Satan who then is, even in our scriptures, accusing God of hmm. doing these things? Hmm. That that he that there is the Satan role, and that's like a really uncomfortable thought that I like I'm don't want to hold. Hmm. <laughs> but when we put these things on God, obviously God can take it. I think God is okay with us, you know, projecting these things onto Him. But when we do that, we are taking sort of that Satan archetype, that Satan role, onto ourselves. Well, I think another point there you may think of, Dan, is that, that, that when we're doing that, we're also we're also damning, in a sense, our our progression in understanding the character of God because we're saying, 
you know, we're ascribing a characteristic to him that, that is going to limit our, our understanding of, of his eternalness, endlessness, right? We, right. we are rather are ascribing something to him that is, that is vengeful and, and fickle and cantankerous, right? Right. We, we've got the, we've got it all backwards. We read God into all these things versus knowing God and using that knowledge to read these things. And that is one of the things that is so fascinating about this account of Enoch as well, because in it, we start seeing glimpses of this, of God's character and, and how Enoch tries to relate to him and understand what's going on here. This is, this is surprising to him, right? Because God right. is weeping. And Enoch said unto the Lord, how is it that thou canst weep? seeing thou art holy and from all eternity to all eternity, right? Like he, he's trying to conceptualize of the, of the endlessness infinity of God. How can you be sad? How is sorrow? How is suffering a part of your existence? I don't, I don't right. understand. Teach me what, how is this possible that you can have this type of experience if you, if you're God and, and then God goes on to explain that his relationship with humanity is much more intimate and important to him than Enoch ever imagined previously. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, Enoch <laughs> has in his mind the, the ineffability of God. Uh, you know, we, we talk about God being all powerful, all knowing all those things. But one of the things that, that I learned is that there's this term ineffable when you know, God cannot be changed. God basically doesn't feel. And I think, I even had a professor at BYU who was like, oh, this story is figurative. And obviously God's not really crying because in heaven, you know, all tears are wiped away. And it's like, well, no, I, I, I don't I don't know that that's the case. I, I think that maybe, you know, both of them have this figurative language, but both are also in a way real. And I do like the idea that God wouldn't weep over his creation. You know, when I weep, when my kid stumbles, like, I don't think. God cares for me less than he cares, less than I care for my kid. That strikes me as wrong. Yeah. You know, you, you alluded to that scripture in Revelation that talks about all tears being wiped away, right? I mean, certainly when you're describing a condition, you have to use certain imagery in order to try to explain what's going on, right? So like, if you have a fullness of joy, that means all your you're, you're not crying, like all your tears are wiped away, like you're happy, right? So this, these, are, these aren't tears of, of sorrow. You can't be having sorrow. And then at the same time, we're told that, that Christ weeps. Even after he's resurrecting, he comes to the Nephites and he weeps. Yeah. And then we yeah. have the three Nephites who are to tarry, right? And it says they won't feel any sorrow, save it be for the sins of the world, right? Right. And so – the experience of sorrow, it, it's still integral to the character of God, right? It's, it's still there. It's learning to, to understand what that means and, and how that can be that, that becomes, you know, the experience of Godhood, so to speak, right? And I think that's, that's the vision Enoch is having here and, and trying to put it into words. That's the ineffability of it, right? The, the inability to express it, to articulate it in a precise way. So he 
he uses these these images to try to to explain what it is that he's seeing with God and and his character. And then we come to these verses here where you can kind of feel the emotion coming through the verses here as as God is speaking. And and yeah. we come across this this other verse that I think is very difficult and and I want to talk about it, but I'm going to read through this to kind of get the narrative here. The Lord said unto Enoch, Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands, and I gave unto them their knowledge in the day I created them. And in the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. And unto thy brethren have I said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me their father. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. And the fire of mine indignation is kindled against them, and in my hot displeasure will I send in floods upon them, for my fierce anger is kindled against them. Behold, I am God, man of holiness is my name, man of counsel is my name, endless, and endless and eternal is my name also. Wherefore, I can stretch forth mine hands and hold all the creations which I have made, and mine eye can pierce them also, and among all the workmanship of mine hands, there has not been so great wickedness as among thy brethren. Behold, their sins shall be upon the heads of their fathers, Satan shall be their father, and misery shall be their doom, and the whole heavens shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore, should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer. Okay, so we get this whole monologue here of, of God to Enoch, basically describing his affection for his children. And in the middle of it, we get this verse 34, yeah, which which is interesting. And, and really, when you read through it, it feels very out of place because you're feeling all of this, you know, sorrow and pain because of the wickedness of the people. And then all of a sudden, this, this anger comes in, right? Right. And there's, there's multiple ways to talk about this. So, so verse 34 says this, and the fire of mine indignation is kindled against them. So in the verse just previous, one of the ways I'm going to take this is, is how we, we have discussed this in the past when we come across these verses that are descriptions of, of God's attitude. What we're actually seeing is a description of people's attitude toward God. Right. Not God's attitude towards his children. Because what we see here is God is describing how these people are. They're without affection and they hate their own blood and the fire of my indignation is kindled against them. In the context of what he's talking about here, what he's saying is, and look at how they view me, Enoch. They view me as vengeful and they're waiting for the punishment and so forth. They don't understand who I am. So in the very next verse, he says, I'm God, man of holiness is my name, man of counsel is my name, right? So he comes back to, this is who I really am. They don't understand who I am. That's why they're suffering because they don't know me. You know me, Enoch, you need to go and teach them, right? That's why I'm giving you this vision. Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is an account that's Enoch filtered through other prophets and then also Joseph Smith. So you have just layers. Yeah, ostensibly we have Enoch nestled in Moses, nestled in Joseph Smith here, right? Is is, is the idea. <laughs> and and I you know I think uh, we we typically understand Moses to take place you know after leaving Egypt and 
we have the story there about God who not quite floods, but uh, who who drowns the the armies in in the sea. There's patterns that I think get sort of entrenched in us, and we see, oh well, that must be God. I have to put that on God, and so obviously he would have those same you know inclinations. It gets it gets read back and back at both ways. Yeah, we talked about once in in well multiple times we've talked about this, but in the scriptures there are often these narratives of of a prayer or conversation that a person is having with God, just like here we have with Enoch. And there's these ebbs and flows and ups and downs of of emotion and and attitude. And it really it when I. One of the first times that I recognized this was happening within scripture was in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, section 109. And Joseph Smith is is giving this prayer and he's like up and down all the time. Like first he's like accusing their enemies. Then he's saying we need to forgive them. Then he's saying we're innocent of crimes. Oh, no. You know, we know we've sinned a bunch. And so he's like back and forth and all over the place in this. And I realized like this is actually we're actually seeing Joseph Smith going through a a struggling and mighty prayer, what we might call it in the scripture, right? So like yeah. we have this back and forth, an ebb and flow of the conversation where God is is struggling with him. You know, that's where like the concept of Israel comes with from too, right? Jacob struggling with angel, struggling with God, right. struggling with him to to bring him to an understanding. And it's not God that's actually doing the fighting it's it's the prayer within ourselves as we struggle with our own will to align it with god's will and so a lot of times yeah. when we see these conversations with god we see this up and down concept because it's a, it's our own selves as we're having this experience it's it's our own self sort of i guess struggling with our shadow self right to align our will with god yeah yeah i think like I, I've had that experience in prayer where I'm like, well, why did this happen? Obviously, it's because, you know, I screwed up here, I screwed up there, and then I, like, am talking about it, and then I'm like, no, obviously, it can't be that because, you know, this is a – there's some other way to view this, so it has to be this thing. And then it's like, well, what am I viewing that in a similarly bad way? You have to constantly renegotiate that, that yeah. again, going back to that Bible dictionary, you're, you have to align your will with God. And sometimes that aligning it's work. Yeah. Sometimes that aligning, uh, is, you know, a, a hard, you know, banging on it with a hammer. Yeah. De- depending on the, the stuff you're made out of at the time. Yeah. Before I move on to any other verses, what, do you have any other thoughts on this little exchange here? It's a fascinating example of just this, this prophetic conversation with God. And there's a number of times in the Old Testament where we see prophets again wrestle with God, whether that's Jacob or whether it's Moses up on the mount. There are times that we see prophets interacting with God. And that is such a, a fascinating story that gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And I think, you know, the reason it gets repeated is because it's something that actually happens with us when we are doing these things when we are praying you know that's the experience that we have with god i yeah, yeah. also i think earlier i used ineffability and i meant impassibility huh. so if that uh, i knew you, you meant know, something words. else i just didn't know yeah. what word you were looking for <laughs> uh no 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 worries i when you said ineffable later i was like oh I used the the wrong word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never use the wrong word for anything. <laughs> yeah, so 
going on in this in this conversation, there's there's some other just really great gems of of the description here of of Enoch, and then and and his his conversation with God. So, you know, I hate skipping over any verses because all of them are great. But I'm going to go to verse 41. It came to pass that the Lord spake unto Enoch and told Enoch all the doings of the children of men. Wherefore, Enoch knew and looked upon their wickedness and their misery and wept and stretched forth his arms and his heart swelled wide as eternity and his bowels yearned and all eternity shook. I mean, this is quite a verse here to me, again, describing this struggle and this experience. Enoch isn't just experiencing the great deep love and and power and awe of God, he's also experiencing the misery and pain that happens because of, of wickedness. And God is, is, is giving him this experience so Enoch can understand and have that, that empathy and that compassion for those that he is to go and preach to. I mean, is it any wonder that that Enoch, after having this kind of experience, has the power to go out and preach and build Zion, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I had this question when I was going into reading Moses 6 and 7. I, I, was, I was asking myself, what was it about Enoch that was so special and so different? Because what he did was not done anywhere else. And, you know, in the Old Testament... We, we just get basically the one Enoch walked with God. And it's like, boy, you, that's a lot that is missing there. And in this story, it's, it's, it wasn't evident to me until, you know, I, I realized that this was, this was the vision that, that Enoch was having. That this wasn't, you know, after the fact, Enoch got this. This was, you know, something that he got that kicked everything off that this was part of his special sauce or, you know, his way of doing missionary work is he had this mystical experience of union with God that he had this, you know, that heart swelling wide as eternity and, and all eternity shaking that that is, that is that experience of God that happens that completely changes everything. Right. We, we talked earlier about him having the vision of, of Satan and then he has God, but not only does he see Satan and, and effects, but he's now experiencing a lot of, of that darkness, right? So here mm -hmm. we get verse 44. And as Enoch saw this, he had bitterness of soul and wept yeah. over his brethren and said unto the heavens, I will refuse to be comforted. I mean, yeah. that's also quite a statement there, right? Enoch is a nihilist right here. Like, like mm -hmm. he, he actually tells God... I don't see the benevolence of the universe right now, God. Yeah. I don't – I refuse to be comforted. <laughs> like he's saying, you don't have anything to offer me. I mean that's quite a statement, right, for Enoch yeah. to say that. It seems to me Enoch here in this verse is, is a nihilist, right? Yeah. Yeah. There, there is definitely that. It's, it's one of those things that in order to experience the highest highs, you go through the lowest lows, yeah. you know, that this it's, it's a matching experience. There's, you know, we have to have sorrow as deep as our joy is high. I have to say, I, I don't, I can't say that I know exactly what Enoch is feeling here. Only that the concept, the way it's described is familiar to me in some ways. And 
one of the experiences that I've related before, and and Dan, you may have had this similar experience because you you kind of turned me on to this, was a series of podcasts done by Dan Carlin with Hardcore History um, called Ghosts of the Ost Front, where yeah. he talks about the the war or the front between Germany and, and Russia in World War II. And, you know, without going into it, basically just the worst things that have ever happened in human history happened then and there on a scale that is really mind boggling. Yeah. And, and to, to hear that and, and, and somewhat digest it just from a historical point of view, like after I got done with those, I was glad that I was driving a a long drive. Like I was able to just kind of take my headphones out and just like, just kind of cry all the way home, honestly. Like it was intense to to just realize that 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 humanity was capable of these types of things. So like in in a certain sense, like I kind of see where Enoch's coming from here. Yeah. And Enoch presumably saw, you know, as dark or darker things than that. Right. Because of everything he beheld. So how does Enoch come back from this, right? So the God goes on to explain to him, you know, the history of the world. And Enoch keeps asking this question, you know, like holding on for hope, but when will the earth rest? But when will the earth rest? Right. When is, when is this going to happen? And verse 46 really stood out to me in, in a metaphorical way this time in, in a way that hadn't before. Enoch is asking, when will the Lord come? You know, when does Christ come and actually, you know, have the atonement so that these things can be taken care of? And the Lord said, it shall be in the meridian of time, in the days of wickedness and vengeance. And so this concept, meridian of time, you know, we talk about this in a historical timeline concept, you know, as if, you know, it's like right in the middle of, of time, which mm-hmm. really on it, what if you get out like a scriptural timeline, it, it doesn't actually sit in the middle. So that never made sense to me. But, yeah. <laughs> but the concept of meridian of time is actually really interesting because- you know, Dante gets to this. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita. So this is this is the midlife crisis psychologically, right? Yeah. So if we talk about meridian of time, not as a meridian of time of of, of humanity's history, but meridian of time as as our own personal history, right? Mm-hmm. Then you know we we even talk about it in midlife crisis, but it's not even necessarily just that. It's it's when we're in the middle of something, we're the deepest in despair right now, where Enoch's at, right? Yeah. That's where Christ comes. Yeah. It's uh, in alchemy, you know, the, the dark night of the soul. Yeah. In the days of wickedness and vengeance, that's when Christ comes. When it's dark, Third Nephi, right? When it's dark, yeah. that's when Christ yeah. comes, when the light comes. And all the description before is all darkness to him, just like Moses says, right? And so I, I really liked this concept here that, that that Christ would come in the meridian of time in the days of wickedness and vengeance. This actually goes back to a concept that we've talked about a couple of times that Christopher brought up is that stories really begin in the middle. And and <laughs> he, so we, we were talking about, okay, let's let's start from the beginning. Exodus. He's like, wait, Exodus isn't the beginning. Well, Exodus is the beginning because the people are in slavery and they don't know what to do and they're crying to the Lord and they're at their lowest low, right? And then their their deliverer comes, right? God delivers them from that. 
that's where the story starts. Then what they do is they go back and they rebuild their whole past. That's where, you know, Genesis is everything that brought them to this point. But Genesis makes no sense and doesn't matter to them without Exodus. Yeah. Right. And, and that's why this meridian of time is so, so interesting. You know, like none, none of the stuff that, that happens before makes sense until you're down in the, in the middle of it. Right. Right. In yeah. the thick of it. So, and in fact, that's, that's what happens when this happens. Enoch has a redefining event because he says he, he sees this day of the coming of the son of man. And, you know, in verse 47, he says, he rejoiced. He says, the righteous is lifted up and the lamb is slain from the foundation of the world. And through faith, I am in the bosom of the father and behold, Zion is with me. So when he sees this happening, all of it becomes recontextualized, reinterpreted, redefined as something that, it, of course, this was always happening. Hmm. Even as, you know, we were in this darkness and we reached this meridian, we were able to look back and see oh, this is what happened. You know, oh, it, it's... There were... There was one set of footprints. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. My, my No, but the best example I can give is, again, you know, heading up a mountain. When you're hiking, there are certain points where you are exhausted, weary, tired, and you reach a certain point where things roll over and you look back and you look forward and you all of a sudden realize where you are you're like oh i'm on a mountain now and i wasn't i'm not just on a mountain now but i have been on this mountain the whole time hmm. like this trail is not separate from the mountain this trail is a part of the thing i've been doing to get to this part of the mountain yeah. and that that strikes me as you know tying back into the already always worthy that christ has always already been slain from the foundation of the world yeah that is something that always has been there yeah yeah the the, the healing you know that healing comes into place we realize that there there's that retroactive healing of that yeah. thing so yeah enoch gets the hope here and he, even though he starts seeing all of these horrible th things still happening in history he now is is grounded in that hope. And so he does. He's deep. When will the earth rest? Right. You know, I, I know this is going to happen, but but now I, I'm still anxious for when. Right. And so th yeah. this continues in in the vision here and ends up here. I'm going to go to, to verse 63. Feel free to go back if there's some other things you wanted to, to talk about in there. But he says, the Lord said unto Enoch, then shalt thou and all thy city meet me there. Meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. So this is ostensibly talking about, you know, the the Latter-day Restoration and then the recreation of Zion and then its its meeting with it. But it really symbolically and 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 probably also literally, like in the context of human history, this is actually talking about all of humanity, the entire human family. Because in, in our narrative, the whole concept of the restoration was really a gathering, mm -hmm. not just a literal gathering, but also the symbolic gathering and the, the, the temple word gathering of the entire human family into the, the Zion, right? Into Zion, yeah. into the city. And then what does God do with it? He takes it up. And so it, 
what God is telling Enoch here is, hey, we're going to get everybody together and they're all going to be healed. And then they're all going to experience Zion just like you have. They'll understand it. It'll all be be taken care of. Everyone will be gathered. Yeah, again, that reconciliation, that bringing things together, that the then shall they see them, see us. That strikes me as, mm. you know, they are already there, but there will be a time when I mean, you know, it, it, maybe I'm a little bit off base with this, but there's something preventing us from seeing them right now. And that may just be simple geography. But I, I suspect that there's more than just where they're located that's preventing us from seeing them. They shall um, see us. I think that's a good point. I mean, especially in the context of Enoch being the seer, right? Yes. And and when when he first gets his calling, God tells him to put clay on his eyes and wash it off, and he sees all the spirits of men, right? And so then shall they see us, right? They'll they'll be able to actually see what's going on, the true natures and and so forth. Verse 64, there shall be mine abode and it shall be Zion, which shall come forth out of all the creations, which I have made. And for the space of a thousand years, the earth shall rest. And the Lord showed Enoch all things, even unto the end of the world. And he saw the day of righteousness, the hour of their redemption and received a fullness of joy. All right. So here's the antithesis of what we got on just the past page where Enoch had bitterness of so his heart swelled why is eternity right this is his capacity to experience is expanded and then he goes down and experiences bitterness of soul refuses to be comforted then he's brought slowly back up through this ascension right this is dnc 76 as well terrestrial terrestri celestial he's brought back up through his ascension to to zion and he receives that fullness of joy yeah. And all the days of Zion and the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch and all his people walked with God. Yeah, you know, Enoch, when he gets his prophetic calling, he is in a high place. And then he goes into the valleys to teach these people. And then he goes back up into the mountain, and he prays with God, and then God calls him to a higher mountain. So he physically followed that same pattern that he then follows in his vision. Hmm. where he starts at a place and then has to descend and then goes back up. And then he's given greater capacity to go up further. Oh, yeah. yeah I, that's awesome. I hadn't quite picked that out as, as being part of that pattern, too. I, I mean, I saw like the overall pattern, but that particular is very, very interesting. And it's all about recreating Eden. Uh, you know, Enoch starts with Adam when he's teaching. And he continues with Adam when he's teaching. And what is the end goal? The earth will rest. The earth is going to receive its paradisical glory, right? It's all about coming back to Eden. Yeah, you know, the, the word rest, we talked about when we, when we did the creation. Because the creation, as, as a temple text, talks about a period of, of seven days. Six days of the ordering and then the seventh day of rest, which which isn't a relaxation period like we might conceptualize of it um, where we put our feet up on the coffee table or the hot chocolate table and and do nothing, right? So the, the seventh day is the day when, when God enters into his temple and begins actually performing the ritual, 
right? Because the temple's been dedicated. And so that's interesting. The earth shall rest. Now, finally, the earth is entering into its stated, fulfill the measure of its creation purpose, right? And then experience that, which which we, you know, doctrinally we call the paradisiacal glory or the, you know, celestialization, so to speak. Right. And, you know, I don't disagree with that interpretation, but I wanted to put a little bit of different spin on it because I think of it sometimes as rest, meaning recovery, Mm. because the earth is symbolically, it is the divine feminine. And back in verse 48, you know, Enoch hears this voice from the bowels of the earth saying, whoa, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained. I am weary. Yes. In a way, it is almost as if the earth, when Adam falls, is impregnated with sin. And for the next, until it is redeemed, it is going through all of the process of, you know, getting ready for the birth of the new earth. Hmm. And when the earth gives birth, it becomes, you know, that new Eden, then the earth rests because it has to recover. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone express that, but that is something that came to me. So no, no, no. That's that's really that's a really interesting way of conceptualizing the the symbolism, the metaphor there of that. I think there's probably a lot to that. I'll have to think about that some more. Well, I'm sorry to bring that in. At, you know, an hour hour plus in. <laughs> no, because because now I'm going to make you bring up something else, uh, Dan, that that you posted in the Latter Day Peace Studies Facebook group an idea that, that came to you about what it means here at the very end of this chapter, where it says, Enoch and all his people walked with God, and he dwelt in the midst of Zion. And it came to pass that Zion was not, for God received it up into his own bosom, and from thence went forth the saying, Zion is fled. So, so Dan, I kind of want you to talk about, if you would, some of your, your thoughts on the different ways of, of viewing what's going on here. Okay, so when when I was reading this, I've been trying to recreate critical biblical theory, which, you know, I think has some flaws, but a lot of really good uses. And basically, it's when we read the Old Testament, we are not trying to be, you know, the fundamentalist literal interpretation. We're trying to understand context and, you know, go back to source documents and those sorts of things. Well, when you read Moses, it's a little hard because... You know, we don't have a source document yeah. to compare anything to. <laughs> but basically, I what it's done is that it's made me ask other questions and try and figure out what other angles or explanations could be occurring. And what, what triggered this was, okay, Enoch's people are Zion, and God takes Zion up, right? That is the story that we know. Enoch's people get so righteous that God's like, oh, you can't be on earth anymore. Got to take you into heaven. My contention with that is that we have another case in 4th Nephi where the people are, as far as I can tell, as righteous as Enoch's Zion. But the Lord doesn't come scoop them up. Well, okay, we could say, well, the Lord didn't want to there. The Lord did want to there. Okay, fine. I could accept that as an explanation if that winds up being true. But Part of me wondered if there's something else going on because so much of this chapter talks about how everyone who is not Zion is involved in bloodshed and killing and slaying and warring. 
And it talks about, you know, the fear of the Lord being upon all nations because Zion, and it, it doesn't talk about Zion being in these fights. It said, you know, Enoch's faith was so great that he led the people of God. He didn't lead them to battle because it says, and their enemies came to battle against them. And all Enoch does is speak the word of the Lord and talks about the earth trembling and mountains fleeing, rivers of water turning out of course, roaring of lions, and all these nations fearing Zion. And I have been trying to apply this nonviolence principle to the scriptures. And I had this thought that perhaps one of the reasons that the people of the earth generally were so afraid of Zion was because Zion refused to fight back. And it brought up to my mind the images of, you know, the anti-Nephi who, when their brethren come and attack them, what do they do? They, they kneel down and let themselves be slain. And I thought, you know, one of the things that would be most terrifying to the wicked, the violent, the people who are entrenched in that system of might makes right would be the idea of a whole people who refuse to participate in that system, who willingly give their lives up, who reject the supremacy of violence for, again, one heart, one mind. And, you know, I thought, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe the reason that Zion is fled and maybe the reason that, you know, people are so scared of Zion is because there were times when wicked people would come against them and, and slaughter them. And because people still have, you know, a conscience at some point, they're so terrified by people who just lay there and, and allow themselves to be killed that they can't comprehend it. And it's, it's the scariest and hardest thing for them to deal with. Traumatizing. Yeah, because you can't then make them the other. You can't say, well, they fought back. You know, there, there's ex post facto justification in war. Obviously, I had to kill that guy because he was going to kill me. Well, you can't do that with Zion. And I thought, well, maybe this is nothing. But then I thought, you know, when I bring up the nonviolence principle, the first and immediate pushback, and I don't know, Ben, maybe you've had this experience with, with sharing with people, um, because they all share the same thing that they're most deeply afraid of is that someone is going to come in their house and shoot their family and, you know, rape their wives. Every and time. every time that is the scenario that is proposed. And it says, well, if you believe in nonviolence, how can you deal with that? And, you know, it, it is a not simple question to deal with. Uh, it is something that I think you have to answer to yourself when it comes to this nonviolence thing. But the fact that that is brought up immediately shows that there there is something there that even, you know, our fallen selves recognize like it is terrifying. The idea of not defending yourself, of being nonviolent, of being well, and of being peaceful even. So you're talking about the possibility that we have an entire city of martyrs here and that the idea that Zion is fled, this this phrase that we have at the end, may not refer to some concept that we have of translation as much as it does to the idea that these people were willing to to give their lives or to to stand as witnesses, as Alma says, even unto death. Right. Be, you know, to actually fulfill their covenant, to stand as witnesses of God at all times, in all places, in all things, even until death. Right. And, and that, 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 
that they took that covenant so seriously that they were willing to depart this mortal life holding on to that idea. Right. I think that that's a really powerful reading of this. I know yeah. that you mentioned how it's it is hard to pull out of the text and so it it's quite a conjecture, right? But there's a lot that it fits with our other scriptural narratives and then, you know, many many other examples that we can we can come up with of the the concept of of nonviolence and and peace studies as we've talked about it. And you know, we see the example of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's we see the example of the city of Ammonihah. We had a discussion about that when, when we did the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. There's, there's multiple examples in the scriptures of, of these concepts. And to posit that, that Zion was simply you know, an example of that writ large, um, I think there's some power to that. Uh, one of the reasons that, that I think that it, it, there's a lot of meaning to it is that, that we often – we often posit Zion as as the ideal, you know. Well, if if we're nonviolent enough, right? If if mm-hmm. if we are Christ-like enough, then we'll be safe, right? Like, right. You know, and and I know there's a there's a part in here where Z, where Enoch talks about, oh, surely Zion will dwell in safety, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we 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 probably could talk about that, you know, his his sort of hope that that's the case, right? And Lord doesn't necessarily, you know, validate that at all, but um, right. But that doesn't necessarily here or there. But you know, we we have this idea that well, if you know, if ideally, if we're if we're just Christ-like enough, then then God will physically protect us, yeah. right? And and we not only we won't have to fight battles, but we'll be physically protected. And I think that there there's a real difficulty with with that position there because what it does is it it instantly lays on on every person that's that's ever died unjustly the branding of not Christ like enough right and and that's really difficult <laughs> right which the the extreme irony of of saying <laughs> not Christ like enough right uh yeah man yeah i i so i wanted to go back actually to that scripture that that you were talking about the, okay. with, with the, you know, what Enoch says, because it starts, okay, this is, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. And it's, it starts with the Lord calling his people Zion because they're one heart and one mind and dwell in righteousness. Right. And then Enoch continues preaching and he builds a city that's called the city of holiness, holiness, even Zion. And then it says, and it came to pass that Enoch talked with the Lord. And I kind of imagine that Enoch's like, Maybe it's the last day of, you know, construction on the city and Enoch's like, all right, God, look, look, we've got, we've got our city. Like surely Zion shall dwell in safety forever. And, you know, God's answer is Zion have I blessed, but the residue of the people have I cursed. God doesn't say you're right. Zion will dwell in safety forever. It's interesting here that the, the next sentence there, because Enoch says, surely Zion shall dwell in safety forever. The next sentence says, but the lord said (laughs) it's almost an implication there that you know the lord's like well that's not you know that's not the point yes and in in verse 21 it says zion in process of time was taken into heaven it doesn't say at a certain point in the future it talks about a process of time well interesting a process huh yeah it's it's over time so you know do you think that Every couple days, the city raised another five feet into heaven, or do you think that other things were going on? 
Yeah. I, I think it's a powerful reading. I think there's something to it that we, we really need to, you know, meditate on and ponder for a while. I certainly uh, think there's still room for the, the conventional, traditional interpretation, right? Absolutely. Um, and but But I think there's something to it. Yeah, I think there are some verses that, you know, I would say directly flat out contradict what I'm saying. Just because, it, but again, that may be because this is something that Enoch's seeing in vision, and it's hard to tell if he's seeing future, current. So, mm-hmm. so I think there's there's things that contradict with enough ambiguity that I think there's still room to understand this this way. Well, I I love it if if for no other reason it gives me something to really uh, think about as a. a you know, a scriptural meditation here on, on, on what this would mean for, for this to be the case for this people. So, um, I, I feel like, uh, we, we failed to, to mention, I'm, you know, this is still an appropriate time to do it, that, um, the, the little book by Neil A. Maxwell, Enoch Letters, yes. that is a great companion to these two chapters uh, of Moses. And I think it's really easy for, for anybody to pick up. It's a, it's a short read. You can sit down in a Sunday afternoon or morning, you know, whatever, and, and read through this book. Uh, Neil A. Maxwell really does a great job of trying to build a world around this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's written in the uh, genre of like screw tape letters um, where you just have these letters. I've described it as the anti-screw tape letters. Yeah, exactly. But it's not, you know, it's not the 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 antagonistic type of thing. Right. So very very good. Gives you some concepts to think about on the the topic of Zion. And I'd really encourage anybody to, if you haven't read that before, or maybe you have a long time ago. It's been a while since I've read it. To to pick that up and and chew on it for a little while. That's a good companion to this meditation here. So, yeah. Yeah, I just that that is a book that uh, I read along with uh, Nibley's Approaching Zion. Uh-huh. Um, that I think is another one that really, really highlights some of the things that we don't necessarily talk about day to day, you know, especially when it goes back and examines some of how Joseph tried to implement Zion through things like, you know, the, the United Firm and, and their various practice practices sure. i think that uh, that's another one that, the economics of it yeah yeah nibley also had uh, a strange thing in the land which is a uh-huh. I think thir- 13 part series that deals with the book of enoch and how it its history and relation to our book of enoch and yeah the, sort of how all the apocryphal texts um sort of intertwine or relate to what we have as, as our book of enoch yeah and i think i think those those three are like Approaching Zion is very long, so you could probably, uh, you know, uh, may- maybe pass on that one. Uh, but I think uh, both A Strange Thing in the Land and The Enoch Letters are, I think those are both eminently readable. Yeah, I agree. Well, Dan, I think we've we've really touched on a good part of the, the meat here of this chapter and had a, a really good discussion. I appreciate you coming on this with me. Is, is there anything else you want to add before we end? No, um, again, thank you for having me. I think we, we did cover a lot of ground, uh, not, and there still seems like much more that we could have touched on. Oh, yeah, always will be. So, yeah, no, I, I sure appreciate your willingness to do this, Dan. I hope we can do it again in the future. But for now, we'll sign off for Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Dan Meehan. Thanks. Thanks.